uh, great kudos for being here this morning, and it is good to gather together and to worship. Uh, as Sharon said, uh, it is wonderful to have, I think with the team and all, nearly 100 young ladies that are, uh, that are here this weekend, high schoolers, uh, for Awakening, which is great. I feel like I'm at home when I'm surrounded by so many girls. It just feels very cozy to me. So, uh, but what a great gift um, it is for us to be able to do that. Uh, earlier, uh, or recently, in the last couple of weeks, I was uh, having uh, lunch with a pastoral colleague and was telling him that we had been kind of slowly but surely going through the gospel of Luke. And he said, wow, you mean, you, so you've just been going through the whole thing? You haven't like skipped some parts or anything like that? And I said, no, we've just been going through the whole thing. And I appreciated the fact that he realized in many ways what a challenge that is, and certainly today is one of those days, right? I, I yearned this week uh, for the story of Zacchaeus. That was a, a very pleasurable, easy uh, passage in many ways. Uh, this passage has some more complexities and struggles with it, if I'm to be honest. And so, uh, but it is here, and it is here for us to wrestle and to grapple with. And so we are going to do so. Today is really uh, the last day uh, before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Next week, as we will see, it'll be kind of odd. Uh, in January, uh, I guess it'll be February, uh, we're going to be doing the Palm Sunday uh, scripture passage. So that will be next week. Jesus will finally have arrived in Jerusalem, if you can believe it. And um, But today we are still uh, in Jericho. In fact, likely we are still at the house of Zacchaeus. Um, so, with that, let us dive into Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant region to receive royal power for himself and then return. He summoned ten of his slaves and gave them ten pounds and said to them, Do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by doing business. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made ten more pounds. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing. Take charge of ten cities. Then the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. And he said to him, and you rule over five cities. Then the other came, saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you are a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave, you knew, did you, that I was a harsh man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has ten pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us. Help us to hear this as you would have us to hear it. Help us to wrestle with it as you would have us to wrestle with it. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So this is, uh, as I said, a bit of a difficult passage or parable for us to uh, wrestle with and to preach on for a number of different reasons. Uh, One of those reasons, and uh, Pastor Scott and Pastor Stan bring this up in their podcast this week, is because there's actually a very similar parable in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, that parable tends to be much better known and is preached on uh, more often. Uh, And so there may be that there is a similarity. It could even almost be the same parable, but it's two different ways of looking at the parable. But the problem is, is that because most of us know it through the lens of Matthew, we will at times then just simply place that onto the book of Luke and onto this telling of the parable. And it at times could give us an inaccurate view or understanding of the way that Luke tells this story. The second challenge, of course, with this parable is verse 27. Uh, You may have heard it. It's placed there at the very end. It's jarring, to say the least, uh, where the nobleman asks to bring in those who did not want him to rule or did not want him to rule over them uh, so that they could be slaughtered in his presence. Um, Not exactly the most heartwarming of passages or lines. The third uh, uh, challenge is that there's actually two very different ways to look at this particular parable. Uh, The one way, this is the more traditional way, is to look at the nobleman as being good, someone who reminds us of Jesus in the way that Jesus would rule. The other is to look at the nobleman as actually being somewhat evil, and that what Jesus was trying to actually do here is to compare his reign, his kingdom, with that of this nobleman. And as, you, as I kind of looked through that this week and wrestled with it, I, I realized that one of the things that we learn about Scripture when you wrestle with something like this and when there's two really different ways to look at it is it gives you a remarkable amount of humility. Uh, because you realize that things aren't as easy, and when we wrestle with Scripture, we would always be wise to do it with an abundance of humility. I do, though, I want to at least give voice to what's a more contemporary reading of this, just briefly, but that is to look at why would people think that perhaps the, do- the nobleman is actually evil. Well, one of the reasons is that it says that he goes off into a distant land. And oftentimes, whenever you hear about someone going off into a distant land in Scripture, it's not usually a good thing. You remember the story that we oftentimes call the prodigal son, and he went off to a distant land, and he ended up squandering everything, right? So, so it could be that perhaps when it says he's going off to a distant land, that that's, that's Jesus' way of saying, okay, this is not the right kind of person here. 
Then, of course, he gives people uh, uh, money. He gives those different servants uh, money in order to invest um, into uh, what he's doing. And as we begin to think about that, we remember then what the third servant said, which the third servant, you know, said that he was a, a harsh man. And so we begin to think, okay, well, he was actually kind of harsh, and maybe this was uh, not necessarily a good person after all. There's also those who would begin to say, well, this is kind of greedy, and actually interest was not a good thing back in this day. For the Jews, you would not have uh, normally uh, been charging interest, and so that's also, you know, not a good thing. Another sign that the nobleman is not good. But perhaps one of the more interesting reasons, though, behind believing that is the fact that there's something historically going on at this time that was remarkably similar to the parable that Jesus told. Uh, You know King Herod. You've heard of King Herod, and he had two sons. Um, One of those was Archelaus. And as soon as King Herod died, guess what Archelaus did? He went to a distant land, aka Rome. And he went there because he wanted to be given royal power to be able to be king. And there were a group of Jews who did not want him to be king because he was very harsh And so they went, just like in the parable, they went to Caesar in Rome in order to try to say, no, we do not want to be ruled over by him. And so it would be easy to begin to think that perhaps what Jesus is doing here, he is saying, look, I don't rule like him. I rule, I have a very different kind of rule. My rule is not like the world. Now, in all honesty, what makes one really perhaps be most drawn to this particular rendering is that then verse 27 becomes much more palatable. It's much more palatable to think that, okay, good, this means that the nobleman is actually bad so that when he wants people to come into his presence so that he can slaughter them, that's not how Jesus is. We don't have to think about the parable like that at all. It makes it much easier, actually, to understand and to preach. Which is also, if I can be so honest, why it makes me a little bit skeptical. Now, to be sure, I think it is a way to look at this parable, but I am almost always cautious whenever it is that we soften Scripture to make it a bit more palatable. But the other reason that I want us to talk even more about what this looks like if the nobleman is actually good is because it does seem like it's addressing the situation that Luke is wanting us to hear. Luke prefaces this passage, you can see it in there, by saying that Jesus is telling this parable because there are too many, it seems, who believe that his kingdom is going to come about immediately. So what is Jesus wanting to do? Jesus is once again wanting to help them to see that the kingdom will not come right after Jesus dies and is resurrected. At least not in the way that they think. And so he says, what? That the man went off to a distant land. And perhaps this is Jesus saying, look, after this and the transfiguration, I'm going off to a, quote, distant land. And after that, 
You are going to be left here. Luke loves, we've talked about this a lot. Luke loves to talk about the sense of the now, but the not yet. And in between, remember, what is Jesus spending all of his time doing? Jesus is spending all of his time trying to make sure here at the end, as he gets so close to Jerusalem, that the people who are there, the disciples and those who will follow the disciples, that they will carry on his mission, right? This is exactly what the nobleman is wanting. The nobleman is wanting um, um, to leave and then to leave these servants, these slaves, these ten, to continue to do the work while he is away. For that reason, then, when they have these gifts, those first two servants or slaves, when they have these gifts, they then use them. And that's exactly what God would want. That's exactly what Jesus would have wanted. But then it comes to the third slave. Who all he does, of course, is hide and protect. It's like he hides or protects it in, in a napkin, in a cloth, in a handkerchief. Because he is afraid. Now you notice that Jesus doesn't say that the nobleman was ever actually angry or greedy. But rather that it's the perspective of the third slave. So all of a sudden, what we begin to see when we see it through this particular lens is that what Jesus is desperate for them to understand is that you cannot hold the gifts that you have been given, but instead you are called to take every gift that you have been given and to use it no matter the risk. The third servant was scared to death to take any risk with what God had given to him. So it seems to me the first point of this, which is really pretty easy to understand, is the significance of making sure that we are always using the gifts that God has given us for others. And as soon as we begin to try to play it safe, then we have lost our way. One of the easy ways to think about that is to think about property and buildings. Several years ago, we talked about this, that when ZPC, like many other church plants, when they began, um, you know, in the Zionsville Middle School, um, every church plant really is, uh, is one of the first two servants or slaves. They tend to be very risky, and their whole life is actually very risky and very vulnerable, and they feel it every week. They feel it, A, because they're going into a property that is not their own. They realize that this is, you know, they're just kind of renting out this space, and they go, and they, they set up all this temporary stuff, if you will, and then they wait, and they hold their breaths in hopes that somebody will show up. And then when the people show up, they're delighted, of course, but then they have to hold their breath again that the people will actually give money so that they can show up again next week. And then right after that, of course, uh, they have to then clear off everything and make sure that, uh, that it seems like uh, they've never actually even been there, right? Because you want to clean up so that you can use the place again next week. And, of course, that's the last thing you want if you're a young church. You want everyone to know that you've been there, but you have to do your best to make sure that nobody knows that you've been there. So it's this incredibly kind of vulnerable state, right? You think about it every single week. You feel the risk of it. You feel like, you know, this may not make it, this may not make it, which is why most church plants, not all, but most, like ZPC, are desperately hopeful that someday they will have their own 
place, their own property, their own building, right? And that's, of course, what happened. But now this is what is fascinating. At the very moment when they have their own property and they put down that first brick, it is both the moment when they feel safer than they have ever felt before, and it is also the moment when they are most in danger. Because you see, what happens is as soon as you get that brick, what happens is you move from those first two servants easily to the very third servant. Because all of a sudden, you start asking very different questions. The questions you begin to ask, you know, are questions like, how do we keep now what we have? How do we keep it safe? How do we keep it looking nice? How do we make sure that others don't come in and ruin everything that we have poured into this place? All of a sudden, you go from asking one set of questions, which is, okay, we've got to do this. This is risky. This is vulnerable, but we got this. We're going to work hard at this. And you kind of work out of that place of risk and giftedness all of a sudden to this place of, okay, we have this place. Now we've got to keep it safe. One of the things that I love about ZPC that I've said many times is that ZPC has done a great job, but it does take a remarkable amount of intentionality of keeping as much as possible this property that we have, these bricks under which we reside in the hands of those first two slaves. We have done, I think, remarkable job from the very beginning, it seems to me, of making sure that this building is always there for others, right? That you can see it this weekend with these ladies who are here. I think you'll see it even more next weekend. Do you have any idea how risky it is to bring in a bunch of high school boys into one's building? You are asking for trouble. And yet this practice is absolutely critical to the life of the church and to make sure that what we do is not just try to say what we protect. We must protect what we own. And I think it's important that we keep bringing this up. We're about to pump $13 million into this property. And now we've done a great job of saying this is why we're doing it. We're doing it for others. We're doing it for the kingdom. But I know that as soon as it's done, I will be one of those who will be looking around. And as soon as there's a little nick somewhere, something like this will be a part of me, right, that says, ah! Scott, settle down, right? All of us who will be upset, right, in one way or another, it's very easy to begin to say, how do I now protect this? So it will take constant vigilance to make sure that we are continually saying, God, this is yours. We will continue to take risk. We will offer up this space because it is not our space. It is the Lord's. But I don't think that this passage is only about making sure that we give up our own gifts and talents that God has given to us to give away. I think it also has very much to do with our willingness to give up our very lives. I say that because twice in this story, we hear the words that there is a group of people who did not want the noblemen to rule over them. The citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Verse 27 begins by saying, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them. 
I think it is no small thing to consider our willingness or unwillingness to have Christ rule over us. And far too often, we do not ask that question. Will Williman tells the story. He was a longtime chaplain at Duke University. He tells the story of one day he was uh, having lunch with a Duke University uh, football lineman. And so, as a chaplain would do, he asked this lineman, he said, well, tell me this, what do you think about chapel? And the football player said, I don't really think about it very much. And he said, okay, well, I mean, you surely you've been in the chapel, right? I mean, what do, you, what do you think about it when you go inside the chapel? And he said, no, he said, I've been here, you know, a couple years now. I've never actually gone inside the chapel. And so he said, so you've, you've never been inside the chapel? So like any chaplain, you know, he would say, you know, well, well tell me why. And he, he said, well, you know, I'll tell you why. Because I have, I grew up in the church, he said. And what I discovered in my time there in the church was that people were, were always trying to kind of get you to change. They were always trying to get you to act or to be a different person. And he said, you know what? I'm very happy with my life right now. I don't really want anything to change. And that's why I have never come to chapel. And Willowman, I think this was probably a subtle jab, said, you know what? That's pretty perceptive for a lineman. <laughs> and he said, you know, I, 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 would, I would say, um, you know, that this is not the normal reason. Usually people say, well, I don't like, you know, I don't like the preacher or I don't like the music. He's like, but what you're actually saying, if I'm hearing you right, is that you're, you're not coming in there because you don't want to get hooked up with a disruptive savior. And the, 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 the lineman said, that's exactly right. And Willeman said, you know what? I am going to make this into a sign. And I'm going to put it over the front door of the chapel. And it's going to just read this. Don't you dare come in here if you are not willing to risk disruption. You see, a part of the reason why I think this lineman is maybe oftentimes even more perceptive than those of us who come into the church. Because it would be my assertion that if God is ruling over every part of our lives, all seasons of our lives, not just on the weekend, but that there will almost always be at least one area of your life that God is disrupting. Because the truth is that the vast majority of us, if not all of us, we are hesitant to want something, anything to rule over us, including God. And it is very easy actually to come into church and to be inoculated in such a way that all of a sudden this no longer is a place where you are disrupted, no longer a place where there is any sense that anything, including God, is able to have control over you. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, book, Running with the Horses, says this. He says, some people come to church looking for a way to make life better, to feel good about themselves, to see things in a better light. They arrange a ritual and hire a preacher to make that happen for them. Other people come to church because they want God to save and rule them. 
They accept the fact that there are temptations and sufferings and sacrifices involved in leaving a way of life in which they are in control and plunging into an uncertain existence in which God is in control. One group of people sees religion as a way to successful, happy living. Nothing that interferes with the success or interrupts the happiness will be tolerated. But the other group sees religion as a way in which hurt, flawed, and damaged persons become whole in relation to God. Anything will be accepted. Mockery, pain, renunciation, self-denial in order to deepen and extend that reality. One way is the way of enhancing what I want. The other way is a commitment of myself to become what God wants. Always and everywhere, these contrasting expectations are in evidence. One of the questions it seems to me for today is just a simple question of which group are you a part? A part of that group which says that we are here simply to have happier, successful lives, or the group that says, Lord, we long for you, no matter the cost, to rule over us. This week, uh, as I'm sure it would be for you, if you were kind of wrestling with this passage, I wrestled mostly with verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Uh, Let me say just quickly about that very last line, that there's no easy way to wrestle with that. I do appreciate uh, what Klein Snodgrass, which has to be the most professorial name of all time, says... Which is that we should keep in mind more the function of this language to arrest us, to warn and to force consideration than to consider whether this parabolic language is to be taken literally. That's not to dismiss it. But it is to say that we need to be mindful that what Jesus is trying to do here is to arrest us, is to awaken us. Us. You might remember, though we may have pushed it to the back of our minds, chapter 12. I think I did this in the fall or late summer, where Jesus tells another parable and it talks about cutting people into pieces. Do you remember that? And what we said back then was that this reality that what Jesus is trying to do is to awaken us because what he wants us to see, and perhaps it's even more important for us in our day and age than it would have been 2,000 years ago, is to realize that we do not serve a God who is some happy-go-lucky bumpkin who doesn't require fidelity or faithfulness. And what I said back then is I made the comparison to a marriage. And in a marriage, of course, when you get married, there is a vow taken, I said, where each person acknowledges that they are committing to one another and will sacrifice for one another. And to think that one can be married and then continue to live like you are single, 
to never sacrifice for one another, to never change your own schedule, to never share your wealth with each other, to never listen, to never practice loyalty, to make one's bed a public invitation is to make an absolute mockery of marriage. It is to make a mockery of the vows you've made and it is to make a mockery of the person to whom you are married. It is to live a lie. And Jesus is going to do whatever he can to make sure that we are awakened to the fact that he does not want us to be self-deceived and to live a lie. He wants us to be fully awake and alert to the question, especially today, which is this. Are you allowing God to rule over you? Because you see, a part of the self-deceit is this. A part of the self-deceit is in believing that we can simply rule over ourselves. It is a constant temptation to believe, well, we don't have to be ruled by God. That means that we can be ruled by ourselves. But here's the reality. We have been created in such a way because we are creation to be ruled over by something. And if you are not ruled over by the maker of heaven and earth, you will be ruled over by the God of your own making. And that God, whatever it will be, will always begin to slaughter and to destroy you. Make no mistake about it. A marriage that is ruled over by lust or by selfishness will become at some point slaughtered by something. A business that is ruled over by greed at some point will be slaughtered. Families that are ruled over by secrets, I can tell you this firsthand, will be destroyed. Young people's lives who allow themselves to be ruled over by hyper-individualism or by a sense of endless choices, they will suffer. Middle-aged folks who allow their lives to be ruled over by the youth, by the worship of youth, their middle age will suffer. The aged who allow their, rule, their lives to be ruled by the past that is past and is probably not merely as great as you remember it, will suffer church after church will be destroyed and have been destroyed when the pastor will do anything he can to be loved or will be destroyed by a group of people who decide that they would prefer to worship the human i.e. the pastor rather than the divine. And I can look over my own life and I can tell you the people whose relationships I have slaughtered because I have been ruled at times by a vicious tongue or by insecurities that make me feel like I have to prove to you that I am smarter or better. We will all be ruled by something or someone. The only question is whether or not it will be the God who made the heavens and the earth or a God of your own making. This is a stark, challenging 
and painful parable. I believe, though, it was Brother Lawrence who said that pain is a small price to pay for the freedom from self-deception. Jesus, on this day, sits there on the cusp of walking into Jerusalem to his very death. And on this day, he invites each and every one of us to take some part of our life that we know we have not yet given over to God. To give it to him as he walks toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. Are we willing to be ruled by Jesus and Jesus alone? Who is ruling over you. Let us pray. God, this is not an easy parable or passage. And it is very easy for us to get caught betwixt and between So God, I pray that you would waken our hearts and our eyes to ask the questions, Lord, that it is easy to never ask. Who is it that is ruling over our hearts, our minds, and our souls? What is ruling over us? And I pray, Lord, that as we wrestle with that, that we might offer whatever is not yours, that we would offer it to you, that you might take it to the cross, that we might then be fully committed to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.